0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're
1: listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: All right, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and uh, we're gathered here today at Roberta's Pizza at uh, the home of Heritage Radio. Um, It's getting to be that time of year where if you're a farmer, um, you might start to... Put the beds to sleep, as they, as uh, you know, so to speak, and um, kind of get ready for the frost that will take over the gardens. Um, so appropriately, I'm speaking with a farmer, and she's also a restaurateur and a wine director. And her name is Deirdre Heekin. She's the author of her latest book called "An An Unlikely Vineyard: The Education of a Farmer and Her Quest for Terroir." How are you, Deirdre? I'm good, Kathy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, congratulations on this lovely memoir. Um, would you call it a memoir, this book? It
1: it well part of it's memoir for mm-hmm. sure. Um it's kind of a um you know, a hodgepodge, an assemblage of of memoir and uh actual nitty gritty mm-hmm. about uh farming and farming thinking and agriculture and and working in a vineyard or an orchard or vegetable garden, so Definitely all kinds of info.
2: Definitely a lot of practical advice and just wisdom gleaned from your experience. Yeah. Um, So I thought I'd read a little passage that I thought introduces the book pretty well, Um, if I may. Please. (laughs) All right. So you write, This Written Journey... That is our farm, involves the planting and tending of those vegetable gardens for the osteria and the planting of eventual and eventual harvesting of our vineyard and orchard. It concerns the making of wine and the notion that life can be lived in both work and play in a way that offers an honest sustenance. It's about wine and about a natural agriculture that encompasses the ideas of a complete farming landscape, philosophies like permaculture or biodynamics, and forest edge ecology. It's about naturalistic wine and what that really means. It's the story of a landscape cultivated for the table. Um, wow. Yeah, so much in that nugget there. But um, the rest of the book really beautifully goes on to explain exactly how you achieved this unlikely quest. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, in Vermont, of all places. So, so yeah. um, catch me up a little bit. Um, you wrote that you didn't think that Vermont was a place where you could grow a vineyard um, until you came across another small vineyard in Vermont. And what was that called again?
1: So Uh, that vineyard is called Lincoln Peak Winery. mm -hmm. And they are over in the Champlain Valley, which our home farm and home farm vineyard is uh in an area uh designated um, or designation called the Chategee, um, which is kind of a wild forest area, very alpine. Mm. And then the Champlain Valley is of course right around Lake Champlain, uh and different altitude, uh, very different growing season. Even though we're all in the same state, mm. and Lincoln Peak has been working uh, for probably ten years or so, uh, and they um, I had been told about them by a friend who lived nearby them and had gone to taste the wines and you know said that they were uh, they thought they were really interesting and uh, they really said something about the possibility. Mm. Of wine here in Vermont and and being a, a wine director uh, for our restaurant, I was immediately kind of captivated by by that notion, and uh, my husband and I went for a visit and and sure enough, I mean, they were doing some really nice work producing and growing some really lovely wine and uh, it kind of really cemented for me this idea that um, wine was possible in, in Vermont. Vermont. That's yeah. really
2: exciting, and of course, you've taken up and um, becoming a pioneer yourself in growing grapes for wine in the region. A lot of trial and error recounted in this tale. Yeah. Um, but tell me, do you see a growing um, a culture or community of other wine growers in the region?
1: Uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, and I would say. Um, Here in the state, it's really a community of both wine and cider growers. Um, Cool. We have both things happening, which is very exciting. And I mean, it's, you know, we're in the early forays, so, um, you know, we're really, you mentioned the frontier, we're all sort of in the frontier. Even though cider has been grown here for a long time right. apples have been grown here for a long time but but there was a period of time when there was no cider and and now as you know I mean it's a renaissance everywhere yeah. um, so so that's happening and and in tandem you know the wine is really beginning to happen. We probably have about between twenty two twenty five licensed growers and wineries uh, that, that are producing wine there are more folks who have started vineyards, who plan on licensing in the future. Um, and, and I just think it's we've got so much great potential to be to be a really up and coming wine region.
2: That is so cool. I'm very excited to try some. Incidentally, I did get to try a lot of Vermont wines recently. And just like in the past few years, it's really been an exciting movement. And we just had New York City uh, Cider Week recently. Yes, um, yeah. And I tried some ciders that I really couldn't tell if they're wines or cider or what. Yeah,
1: they're it's, very elegant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and My they really, of, I think, yeah. speak to to what Vermont's, land, Vermont's landscape offers.
2: Yeah, and what do you what would you say about the distinctions of the wines that are grown in Vermont? Uh, are there any flavors that are very prominent or unique?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, we we are uniquely American, um, first and foremost, and and by that I mean we're working predominantly with varietal crosses. Um, in some cases, French hybrids, but um, in other cases. Uh, crosses that come from French hybrids that uh, have a a vitis vinifera component as well as Native American uh, grape varietal component. And that, uh, you know, in the past, historically, Native, you know, Indigenous grape varietals here are wild grapes. If you tried to make wine from them, they would have a taste of what uh, most people would refer to as foxy. In some cases, they're called fox grapes. They have kind of a musky element to them. But the crosses that have the horticultural crosses that have been done with vinifera grapes and this stock um, produce really beautiful um, wine grapes that mm-hmm. that have uh, highlight the vinifera elements and all the good things about the growing. Uh, DNA that the native grapes have but have sort of released that foxiness um out of the the picture <laughs> as oh. it were. Um so so I mean a couple of things that I would say that are are really distinctive um they make great food wines which okay. is what really attracts me to them. We have a little bit higher acidity as many alpine or mountain wines do given our climate here, mm-hmm. uh, which make for very good food companions. Um, we also have, not only are there, is there fruit, but there are savory qualities hmm. that I find in a lot of the wines that we make that pair really nicely with all different kinds of ingredients that we can grow here. Um, and interestingly enough, ingredients from far flung places, uh, there's a restaurant in Boston, um, Oleana, that is uh, specializes in Middle Eastern Mediterranean food, and our wines make a very happy companion for those oh. kinds of spices and flavors, which um, you would think is unusual. But uh, the the wines are, you know, very aromatic, um, mm-hmm. and in some cases floral. But then, as I said, there's a savory note. Uh, so I think that that makes them very. Um, Unique and interesting. That's exciting. uh, Yeah, was that sort of a
2: coincidence, or because the the restaurant was close by? The wines, maybe they they tried to create a flavor that would pair well.
1: You know, I think you know I have a a kind of a theory about when you see wine start happening in American uh, cultures like ours, and it's usually an outcropping of a food movement. Okay, where. Uh, You see local food happening, CSAs, farmers markets... Cheese. um, Cheese, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And in Vermont, we have a huge um, long-standing cheese movement. And when you see these kinds of things start to happen, I think that it's natural for agriculture uh, and producers Mm -hmm. to look to libations you know, yeah. look to wine and cider and, and beer and spirits and uh we have all those things going on here in the state and um I think I think there is definitely a relationship uh and what I think is really cool about it is that what you see is that they tend to go together without there being any mm-hmm. overriding um uh, manipulation it's, of it, it's sort of it like a natural,
2: happens. yeah, symbiosis.
1: I don't know Symbiotic, the Symbiotic, yes, yeah, yeah. symbiosis. Exactly.
2: Wow, that is very
1: cool. So, what are yeah. some of the
2: grapes that are doing particularly well that we can try um, from your vineyard?
1: Yeah. So, um, we make a, a wine from a white grape called La Crescent, uh, who traces her, um, yes, French and kind of nature and. Um, Thinking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and she traces her history back to a grape called uh, Moscato d'Amborgo or Moscato d'Amborgo, which is actually a black muscat. Uh, and we make uh, an orange wine. We make uh, a sparkling orange wine from that grape. We also have a new blend, white blend, uh, that's coming out, and uh, a white pet net. Made from that as well. Wow, those so, sounds very uh, interesting. Yeah, I find I find that grape particularly interesting um, to me. We have a couple of red grapes. Uh, one is called Marquette, which is being grown uh, quite widely here in the state, mm-hmm. and that comes from Pinot Noir. And oh. Marquette has um, is very responsive to the season um, in a in a drier. Hotter season, it can lean more towards um, stylistically, you know, Syrah or Grenache. So Ooh, it's quite spicy. different, but uh-huh. but kind of bigger wines. When yeah. it, um a cooler, say, wetter season, I think it leans more towards things like Gamay hmm. um, or, or Piemontese wines. Um, also depends on, you know, what kind of microclimate they're grown in. The uh- other red that has really intrigued me is actually an older... French hybrid called Frontenac that um, we've been aging in old oak barrel and uh, we're coming out with it this soon um, from 2013 and I'm really excited uh, Hmm. about how the fruit from this particular vineyard we farm uh, in old oak uh, just marries incredibly well Um, and so I think that's pretty exciting. And then there's some other, there's, in addition to Frontenac, it has what are called two sports or two offshoots, Frontenac Gris and Frontenac Blanc, which we also grow. And the Frontenac Gris uh, we use in a still rosé and also a a pet net. Um, So we're pretty pretty excited about that as well.
2: Wow, it sounds like, you know, just constantly evolving. And that's a really great reminder that each grape varietal can have so many different faces, and that really comes down to terroir. <laughs>
1: yes. Exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. And
2: season and weather. So.
1: Yeah. And one thing that's been really cool for me is that we have three vineyard parcels in three very different locations. And the wines made from the fruit, they, they all share similarities in what fruit or plant is planted there. They are all very different. Mm-hmm. And you really do see that notion of terroir come to play. Um, the wines from our home vineyard, which I said are really you know high altitude alpine versus the ones that are grown right on lake Champlain, um, are are yeah, certainly they share similarities, but they 're vastly different in character
2: right so now um, you mentioned um, that you follow biodynamic um, farming methods, um, the passage I just read from um Stress naturalistic wine growing. yeah do you label biodynamic
1: on your wines
2: or is that we,
1: we mm-hmm. don't because we're not
2: certified
1: okay. um, but our practices that we follow are um, largely um, informed mm-hmm. by biodynamic viticulture. Uh, we also because of where we are and and my experience in, in learning about biodynamics we we also use other um, organic agriculture information like permaculture, you know, other not, organic ideas um, that not also strictly inform what right, we're doing. not not strictly uh,
2: biodynamics.
1: Yeah and um, and though though having said that, I mean we we make some of our own preps. We do um, we use plant medicine when needed. Uh, and that simply means making teas out of things like, you know, chamomile or stinging nettle right. that so, have certain properties that we use. That we oh, then use them for. Interesting.
2: Um, so you know, I see a lot of labels nowadays that say biodynamic or organic, but that's another story. Um, yeah. I mean, how how relevant is that to the cus- consumer? Because you know, you have to get this certification, you have to pay for it um, to get that labeling how valid is it when people are labeling biodynamic? Do you see this as a flexible term? Or is it a really, it, it, I don't know, is how it, legit? Is it more stringent?
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is a really, really good question. And I think something that um, certainly in wine we struggle with. Um, mm-hmm. And, and certainly in other farming, in terms of certification, um, m- my understanding of biodynamic certification uh, is that there are, um, you know, very clear cut and prescriptive methods right. to follow, and that it's like that a if,
2: pass, a test you have to pass, like the kind SAT. Kind of,
1: <laughs> and, and that you, you know, you've got to follow all those things to a T. It's the same for organic, mm-hmm. um, in, here in the states, and. Um you know, I think sometimes, for a grower uh, while those things can be really useful, they can also be too confining, yeah um depending on what 's happening in the growing season and what 's happening with your soil and um so so, for the grower, I think that that's there's a little bit of a conundrum oh, about gosh. that mm-hmm. for the consumer, I think it actually can be very helpful uh, okay. when you see something that is certified. You do know that they have followed those strictures um, to the T and those Mm -hmm. guidelines. So, so what can be confusing right now is that there there are some, oh, you know, distributors uh, and and certainly some wineries that will say we are organic, we are biodynamic, but the consumer doesn't really know if that's true or not, or or like what what are you sacrificing,
2: or maybe like what are you sacrificing in in I don't know, in order to stick with these strict rules uh, that have been placed for you, who knows? Um, Right,
1: right. so it's definitely a conundrum, and I think where we are now, kind of my best advice for the consumer is to research your wine in the same way you would research your food. You know, if you're concerned Mm -hmm. about where your food comes from, uh, you know, it's very easy to go online and look up Uh, a vineyard, you know, or you see a bottle in a store um, to to look it up and get some information. You can also, you know, go to stores and restaurants that um, you know are specifically interested in organic or biodynamic or you know, what we call natural wines.
2: I I think Um, I smell an app for that if it has not been invented yet. So Yeah, I I think that's
1: true, but I think somebody could hop on it really quickly. Yeah.
2: All right. So we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about more uh, labeling issues going on in Vermont. I think you know what I'm talking about, GMO, Um, right when we come back. So more talking with Deidre Hankin after a moment.
1: You are listening to "Say Your Gun Out to by Seth Bed.
2: Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com.
1: Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org.
2: All right, uh, that's a note from our sponsors, and we're back chatting with Deidre Hankin, author of An Unlikely Vineyard. Okay, so we're just talking a little bit about uh, Vermont wines, biodynamic wines. Thanks so much for, for informing us about all the excitement going on uh, nowadays in Vermont. Yeah. Um, another, I don't know. I've been following it quite a bit. Uh, big story recently was that Vermont Vermont passed the first law. Uh, it was the first state that is to require labeling of GMO products. Back in yeah. August, I think. I think it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and now uh, a major, I don't know, group or union of of companies are suing the state of Vermont for this. Uh, for this new measure, um, and a lot of talk is going on about it because one of those companies involved with the with the suit is Starbucks. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: so, so what is your take on? I mean, first of all, it's just so momentous for Vermont to pass this bill. It sounds like a very unified, um, whereas the rest of the country is debating. Um, the, you know the pros and cons are like the ifs, buts, and whats of (laughs) GMO. Vermont is saying no, just unilaterally, or not not really, but labeling, saying yes to labeling, Um, transparency. Um, Is Vermont like another idyllic, like, Nation of its own of like
1: <laughs> green often ideals talk of success yeah right uh, I mean no I'm sort of sort of kidding mm-hmm. um, I mean I think I mean Vermont like any other place has its you know own issues that it's grappling with um, but we because we have such a vibrant food culture happening here now mm-hmm. and local food culture uh, there certainly is a lot of thought and attention given to issues like these. Um, and, and transparency definitely is something, um, I mean, Vermont has always been, uh, I think, has, a, has kind of a character of uh, truth about yeah. it, as truth-seeking. Okay. Um, so to me, it's not surprising that we would be one of the, the first to, to put this um, labeling rule in place. Um of course there I think there's a big uh, I think the attorney general is putting together a group of, of uh, for sessions for meetings to figure out what that law actually looks like and how right. it's going to be implemented um at this juncture but um i mean I think it's people people want to know where Well, it comes down to the basic issue that we were just talking about a minute ago. People want to know where their food comes from. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know where your food comes from, you also want to know what goes into it and how it's grown, um, what kind of seeds were used. Yeah, starting Uh, way back up to the seed. Exactly, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where it all starts. So um, it makes perfect sense that we would want to, given that uh, there is a GMO movement, that we would want to know more about what food is grown from those kinds of seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, it makes total sense to me that Vermont would ask that question and would want to answer.
2: Well, we have yet to see what happens with this lawsuit, um, but I I hear that Neil Young just uh, wrote an open letter to Starbucks to to, to (laughs) defy it. We can
1: use all the help we can get, right?
2: (laughs) Um, So we'll keep a watch on that. Um, But getting back to your book, um, so, you know, this unlikely vineyard that, uh, you know, you've succeeded in um, not only creating a vineyard, but you have a restaurant, the Osteria. um, Yeah. In Vermont, that you plan to, and you were almost there, um, sourcing all the ingredients for the restaurant from your own farm,
1: right? From land yeah.
2: that you tended, and you and your husband, um, you know, turned around from an old dairy farm, I, I believe. Was that?
1: Yes, historically, yeah, it was a uh, first. It was a sheep farm, then it was a dairy farm. Yeah.
2: Um, so, really interesting and really exciting success story. Um, And you know, a a great success story for like a small-scale integrated family farms. Um, I I find that a lot of critics might say, "Well, this is lovely and all, but that's not going to feed the world."
1: Uh, Right, (laughs) isn't that always the question? Right. (laughs) Uh, What would you say in response? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it goes back to what is the tried and true saying? You know, think globally, act locally. Um, You know, I think Mm -hmm. that uh, our our part is in, you know, doing this experiment on our own, showing how it can be done, learning from that, and then sharing that so that right. more and more people can homestead on their own. I mean, I think, um, you know, the more land we can put under agriculture, whether it's in a rural environment or even a, an urban environment, I mean, there's some really exciting agriculture in urban areas right now, uh, that... It just gives us. um, It does in the end feed more people, you know. And certainly, I mean, I think you have to have a range of farms available. You have to have, you know, a small place like ours to, you know, the tiny plot that's just for, you know, a two-person home, to larger farms. I think that larger farms can exist. We know of a. A really fantastic biodynamic farm in Austria that's over a thousand acres, and they produce wine. They uh, raise cattle. They do market vegetables and flowers. They have orchards, and they're working in a very intense, uh, labor-intensive agriculture. So
2: this is like a large-scale but biodynamic and sustainable. Yeah,
1: Yeah. So it's it's possible. Yeah, Um, and I just think we need to continue experimenting and working in these ways to figure out you know what how we can work and in what size-hmm um, and and the more we do the more people will know about it and get involved so
2: and and I love that you know you you're sharing this you're sharing you know every every detail every every triumph Um <laughs> Excuse me. Right, and the, every failure. Only, <laughs> right, um, but your story does seem to embody, I think, a dream a lot of people are having these days of getting more closer to the land in some way or another. Whether it's yeah. starting, you know, your own self sustaining homestead, uh, family farm, or or some other ways, uh, maybe supporting those small businesses. Um, what would you give? Uh, what would what advice would you give to someone who might be in your position uh, twenty years ago, <laughs> just starting out? <laughs>
1: um, I say, get your hands dirty. You yeah. know, uh, start planting things. Um, and even if, I mean, even if you're uh, if you aren't in my position twenty years ago, and say you live in an apartment in a city, you know, plant a pot of basil in a in a windowsill. I think. I think it's actually really important that we all grow something mm-hmm. and that we learn uh, something from the act of planting a seed and you know if you if you're in a in an like I said an urban circumstance where you're in an apartment you do it in your pot in the windowsill if you've got a little bit of land you know put in put in one raised bed mm-hmm. you know do start planting something and And just, uh, I think that um, is probably one of the most revolutionary acts (laughs) we can do in this day and age, is to plant a seed. I love that. Um,
2: I love that you say that farming is also probably in everyone's blood, (laughs) if we go back far enough. Yeah. Um, Did you feel, um, while you were being an unlikely farmer uh, at first, anything that was uniquely intuitive, like, I don't know, that just sort of came to you?
1: Oh, I do think that there's some uh, intuition uh, mm-hmm. that comes into it. Um, I think that it probably, you know, again, it's going back to that act of planting the seed. I think that mm-hmm. that calls in us uh, something pretty primal, and uh, mm-hmm. there is probably just like in an apple seed, there are thousands of years of uh, DNA that, in, uh, that when you plant an apple seed. The plant reaches down into that DNA and um, creates a new apple tree based on its environment sort of out of this grab bag of DNA uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I sort of equate it with us planting something
2: oh my goodness we, is so we true. grab down
1: into our grab bag of <sighs> of uh, historic DNA and um, there's something that really it just connects us uh, and grounds us you know I mean it, that word, that phrase makes a lot of sense, grounding Good. us uh-huh. um, to to where we come from.
2: That is so interesting. I love that, you know, there's always some traits that can that can be brought about uh, yeah. in some way or another. Yeah. Incidentally, we just had Rowan Jacobson on this show, too, so I learned all about oh. how... Yeah. Is he a neighbor of yours? My first editor. Oh, Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, We used to work together. That's wonderful. Oh, it was so much fun. And I learned a lot about apples. Uh, Yeah. She's great. So, okay. Yeah. And that's also another Vermont neighbor of yours. Um, Exactly. Exactly. um, This is really lovely. And this is so wonderful. I'm so glad that you wrote this book um, to share your story in a very. Um you know, not a too preach in not a preachy way, also not a too glorifying way. Um, but in a really real way and it was inspiring. So thank you so much, Deirdre, for oh, for sharing thank this you, book. Kathy. Thank you. All right, and that's about all the time we have today. Um, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.